back to Pretend People, a podcast about all things anthropology and archaeology. We are your hosts, Jill, Lulu, and Kelsey. And we are very excited to be doing our third interview, the lovely Dr. Kimberly Williams. And Dr. Williams is a an award-winning author, teacher, community activist, and uh, public speaker. She is an associate professor and program coordinator of women's and gender studies at Mount Royal University where she teaches many courses on men and masculinity, uh, feminism, critical race and queer theories, and global gender issues, including the transnational sex industry, globalization, and health and healthcare policies and practices. And I found out about you because of your walking tours of booze, broads, and brothels that you led in Calgary. Yes, indeedy. Um, which I am so curious about. I'm definitely going <laughs> to ask you about those. Um, but we're sort of focusing a little bit on how uh, on different different careers, I guess, that women in anthropology and related, because you're not technically an anthropologist. I am not. <laughs> what would you call yourself if you had to? You know, if I, so I do refer to myself as a feminist scholar, right? Mm-hmm. And I, and so my training is in women's and gender studies. Um, and by definition, um, that particular academic location is specifically and explicitly interdisciplinary. So, um, so when you read the literature, you know, about the field, um, and, and my professors taught me when I was in graduate school, that it's, it's very important. The questions are actually what sort of define um, what being a feminist scholar is, the questions and the methods. And, yeah. and the questions are just about unearthing power structures, mm-hmm. making those power structures visible, um, who, who benefits from particular ways that things are always done? How did they get to be that way? What might we do to make them different so that there's more equity, there's more inclusion, right? There's more justice. Um, those are the questions. And then how you get there is, is kind of up to each individual feminist scholar. So if you ask me what I am, I'm a feminist scholar. I will say though, and I have my PhD is women's and gender studies. I will say though, that I came to that space um, on a, on a rather, rather winding and circuitous kind of path. Um, I was a, a double major in university in, in theater first, um, much to the chagrin of my parents. And then, um, and then I found that kind of boring. And so I decided <laughs> to take on another major, which was history. So I was a, mm-hmm. a theater performance major and a, a history major. And that was such an extraordinary experience because I had these brilliant feminist historians who were per- my professors and these labor historians who were my professors. I didn't realize at the time, of course, that that was a pretty extraordinary group of faculty. And I didn't realize that all historians aren't like that. Yeah. <laughs> which, which then I ended up be doing a master's degree in history at a university that I will not name because it was very unpleasant um, because there were a lot of not feminist historians and not labor historians um, and that I only stayed I finished my degree but I it was it was a short program um, and then I left the academy and I was like I don't I don't know what I'm doing I want to let me go be an actor because that's what I was trained for in the first place um, and uh, and then I kind of was an actor in New York City for a while I didn't really like that too much because it wasn't I was having to do I first of all you can't make a living I couldn't make a living and no. and second um you know because I'm not good enough I'm not thin enough I'm not pretty enough like all the reasons right right um, yeah and then um and then I also was finding it really tricky to have to take work that and by work I do mean like free labor so that you can build your resume <laughs> yeah. um I, I was finding it really frustrating to have to take work that wasn't social justice oriented. That was in fact the opposite. That was in fact like playing into the very structures and systems that I had become so passionate about changing. And this was before, you know, I went and got my PhD in women's and gender studies. So anyway, yeah, and then I ended up going to graduate school um, for real that time. And, um, And I ended up doing that because I was working at this nonprofit organization Um, in my home state of Rhode Island, so I'm American. Um, And I was working with this organization that was specifically focused on um, 
sort of the, the refugee resettlement program in the United States. And so my region of the US, this was sort of the place where refugees and, um, and asylum seekers would come to sort of seek services and support. And so I was working there and 9-11 happened. And, uh, wow. and, and so I just like, I was like, and I was teaching actually at the time because I already had a master's degree. So, so I was able to kind of just do some sessional teaching. And I had, and I was teaching what, what was called then Western civilization, which thank goodness has now changed. Yeah. Um, but um, but I, I, I was like, oh my God, I, I know nothing. I don't, I, I don't know anything. And I need to help my students understand what the heck just happened. And so, so that just kind of blew everything open for me in a mm -hmm. really extraordinary way. Um, that was sort of a bad pun, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Um, and so that's, that's where it started because I, I had been really critical of my employer's um, use of, of the bodies of particularly brown women and children mm. um, to like advertise its services and to get grant money. And you know, the nonprofit industrial complex has to roll along. And so I was critical of it, but I didn't understand why and I didn't understand what to do about it. And so that on top of 9-11 and trying to stay like one lesson ahead of my students mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how do I teach Western civilization right now in this semester to these students. And, and of course, geographically where I was teaching was in Providence, Rhode Island. And two of my students who were in my class that semester had siblings that were flight attendants on the flights out of Boston. Um, so their, their siblings, like that morning, I remember this, I can't believe I'm, I, I, this, I'm sorry that I've gone on this tangent, but, but that morning, that Tuesday morning, um, I was getting ready to go to class. And of course we're, we're on same time zone, Eastern Standard Time as New York City. And of course I had already lived in New York City. So I was very familiar with, with that area and getting ready to go to class. And, um, and I heard, oh, a plane flew into the World Trade Center and I'm like, oh, it's probably some biplane, like whatever, yada, yada. And I had to go to class. It's 9.30 in the morning. I had to be there. So I go. And a couple of my students trail in late and a few more trail in and a few more trail in. And they're like, there's like some serious things happening in New York City. Um, and so we sort of just stopped and like all just turned on, you know, the technology and started looking at what was going on. Um, and it wasn't until Thursday, so it was Tuesday, and then Thursday our class met again, and mm -hmm. it wasn't until Thursday that I learned that the reason why those two students weren't in class that day was because their, their siblings, you know, had died that morning kind of oh, thing. So, goodness. yeah, it was like this sort of multiple stuff, right? And I was like, mm -hmm. I need to know more. I can't go through life <laughs> like this. I, I need to figure out what to do about these things and how I might be able to contribute. And, I ne and before I could do that, I needed to like know things. Like for example, where is Afghanistan? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, that's kind of how I ended up in women's and gender studies. And, and again, it's because I, it, part of it too, was that I had for a really long time by then identified as a feminist activist. You know, I'd been doing a lot of sort of work in the community and that sort of stuff. And it just made sense um, yeah. that I should, go there and do that piece of it yeah. yeah well and I think that's such a, a large part of learning is finding out how much you don't know right? yes oh my gosh and that's the other piece of being a feminist scholar too I would argue that it should be a really transparent piece of being other kinds of scholars as well but but from a perspective of being a feminist scholar it's absolutely the willingness to begin again you know the willingness to say I don't I don't know about this but I'm going to go learn something about it and a lot of folks assume that that means that it's not rigorous or that it's not a deep knowledge but that is not in fact the case there's a there's a sort of um a, a very particular kind of rigor that comes with the admission that you don't know all the things and so yeah. let's go find out some stuff you know and then we can analyze it and talk about it and write about it and figure out how to solve the problems yeah 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 no that's very true and i think i think in our society today we're everybody's feels like they have to have an opinion on everything and they need to know everything. And I think it's, there's, it's, it's a very strong character, like character trait to be able to admit that you don't know something and that, and that you're willing to learn too. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, and the thing that's really interesting, right, is in, is in my experience, um, that, and I'm thinking about this as I'm preparing to teach, you know, uh, for the fall, one of the things that comes up in my student evaluations all the time is, 
and, and not not the majority, but enough that I notice. You, know, you always don't notice the negative stuff. You don't of notice course, the positive yeah. stuff. Right? <laughs> but yeah, a lot of you know, so many students misunderstand the transparency of feminist teaching. Um, and my willingness to say, you know, I don't know, let's look that up together. Or, gosh, I've never read this book, but we're going to read it for the first time this semester. A lot of times that's interpreted as, oh, my God, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Oh, my God, she didn't prepare for class. Oh, she didn't, you know. And that's not what's happened. What's yeah. happened, actually, is that there's an there's a explicit mobilization of learning together, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think students are often, well, really everybody, I think is so often used to just being told what they need to think so that they yeah. can like regurgitate it somehow. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not, that's not how I rock and roll, so. Well, that's great. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah, no. Well, and so I, you kind of got into this a little bit, but one of my questions was going to be like, what really, so you have a lot of topics that you focus on and you're yeah. saying like a large part of your work is that interdisciplinary nature Absolutely. and, and, yeah. and that's feminism too, is it, yeah. it is a focus on so many different things. And, yeah. you know, same with anthropology, it's to really look at the whole picture. You have to look at diff various different places, yeah. sources from different places and so on. And so what really got you like, you, the major topics that you're focused on right now, what really led you in that direction? I love this question. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so so the end, the reason I ended up teaching about health and healthcare, so I have a really funny story. When I first came to Mount Royal, um, there was no one, no one on the faculty who really was steadily able to teach that class for us. Um, for all kinds of complicated reasons, some of which are not complicated, but just tangential. Mm -hmm. And um, and so my colleague at the time said, you know, do you want to teach this course? And I was like, well, uh, so not qualified, but um, okay. You know, because like really my, at that point, my research, I was just finishing up my first book and I was right. I mean, I, I do root myself, you know, in, in cultural studies and sort of, mm -hmm. a, um, you know, I, I always joke, I do dead people. I do cultural texts. So do we. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not interested in talking to anybody. You know, yeah. like no. Um, and so, but uh, she said, "Well, we really need someone to teach this course. Will you do it? Will you prep it?" And I was like, "Well, I mean, all right, I guess, you know." And so I started teaching it. Um, and then here's the funny story. So I had occasion to go back. Uh, there was some some alumni event or something in my graduate program, and I. It was probably my second year uh, here in Calgary, and I flew back quick to Washington, D.C., University of Maryland, just to, you know, see my people and meet with some colleagues and just, you know, little reunion situation. And so one of my professors who is, a, is, is joint appointed at, at University of Maryland and Johns Hopkins Medical School and has spent her entire career um, focusing on chronic illnesses among Latinx women oh. in the sort of mid-Atlantic area. She, um, you know, speaks, she's just a beautiful scholar and speaks Spanish and, and Portuguese and just is like amazingly brilliant. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's like, you know, Kim, how are you doing? What you up to? And I told her that I was teaching this, this class and she looks at me, she goes, oh my God. <laughs> I was like, right, this is, this is the problem when you yeah. only have two people who are running, who are trying to teach in a program, right? Yeah. So, um, so the difference between sort of my graduate program, which had nine full-time tenured people, and you know our little tiny program at Mount Royal, we are small but mighty. There's only two of us, plus a whole bunch of amazing, you know, sessionals, contract faculty that that deliver our courses for us. But anyway, so yeah, so that's my funny story about that. So that one was totally by accident, mm -hmm. and then <laughs> just institutional need, and then the other stuff makes more sense, right? Like because one of my fields in graduate school was global, was transnational feminist activism so you know teaching global gender issues and and um and sort of the the transnational perspective on this stuff is is just part of who i am as a scholar and who i am as a as a researcher and activist and when you're talking about transnational feminist activism you're talking about you know stuff that runs the gamut from anti-racism to anti-colonial stuff to um environmental justice to 
uh, I mean, sex work, you know, like yeah. human rights stuff. So it's, it's like this whole thing. And then the other, the men and masculinities piece, it's like, well, I can't teach about gender without also teaching about masculinity because masculinity is gender. So, mm -hmm. um, and, and I started doing that particular course um, when I started really researching my Calgary Stampede book because I was like, mm -hmm. well, if I'm going to understand this event, you know, I always joke with my students, there's like something in the water in Alberta. Um, but that's not, that's not true. There's something in the social construction of gender in Alberta mm -hmm, that's, yeah. uh, that drives some of this very interesting stuff. So that's the long answer to your short question. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's, it's never a short answer, that one, I don't think. Just, um, you just yeah. do it because you have to do it, you know, and in a, in a really tiny program like ours, um, I have found that it's both institutionally institutionally necessary for me to teach that that variety of courses, but also I've made the choice to do it because it's fun. You know, mm -hmm. like I I get to be paid I get paid to be in school. You know, I get yeah. paid to like read all these books and have these great conversations. So yeah, I'm going to teach whatever the hell I want anytime I want. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I am. <laughs> Well, and I think, like, that's what I love about academia. There's obviously many issues, but that is totally it. And so I guess that sort of leads me into one of my questions, which is, you know, how do you feel, like, being a female professor, mm -hmm. it, it is a it is a, a thing, for a sure. Because, yeah, yeah. So, like, how, how do you sort of navigate that? And how do you feel about being a woman in, in academia? Yeah. Um... Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I know that's a very broad question. But... No, it's a beautiful question. So I think, I think I will, there's a few directions that I want to go. So I think the first thing I should say is I do experience incredible misogyny. Mm -hmm. um, and I do experience some real serious homophobia, Interesting. but all, but all microaggressions, right? Yeah, of course. That's <laughs> of course. how, that's how this shit goes. Yeah. At least those two pieces of shit go. Yeah. The other pieces are the other pieces. I think are somewhat more blatant, but I don't experience them because I have white skin. I'm cisgender. Um, you know, I I have a lot of privileges, right? And so, and then and then the other piece that I'll say is one of my extraordinary privileges has been that literally my whole career it was it took me until I was. I'm not going to get my age right, but I was, <laughs> I was, I'm going to do the math wrong. So I'll just say my mid thirties. Sure. It literally took me to my mid thirties to be in a room that was majority men. Mm -hmm. That's just been my, my life experience. And I'm extraordinarily wow. privileged that that has been true. Yeah. And, and I'll talk about why. So, um, I have one sibling, I have a mother my mm -hmm. father was always the person who was like, you know, you can do whatever you want. You, you know, be president, who cares? You know, he was That's really great. supportive. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, he wasn't without his benign sexism, but like he's daddy, so whatever. Sure. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and then I went, you know, and like, just like all through my university experiences, all through my, my graduate school experiences, I just was in classes and had professors that were, if, if not women or queer folks, then extraordinarily progressive men. Until I got to the graduate school that I would not name because it was such a horrific experience. But even then I was still in majority like spaces with women um, by choice because I just chose to like not deal with the toxic crap, right? Yeah. Um, but then when I, when I got my job here was the first time that I was ever in a room with majority men Hmm. and white men to, at that, um, and no people of color, mm -hmm. which was also a first for me. Yeah. Um, and that was actually at my first, second, and third tenure reviews. Oh, wow. Um, on top of which, there was also no one in the room who had a degree in my field at any uh -huh. level. Yeah. So, so these are the, the sort of structures and systems, right, that are tricky. And when you mm -hmm. call them out... Um, you know, to use Sarah Ahmed's term, like you're the feminist killjoy, right? You're mm -hmm. the, you're the, the bitch. You're the, you're the person who's who's bringing negativity down upon the world. Um, 
Yeah. So, so how to? Yeah, I don't even know how else to answer that question. I think those <laughs> are the. That's that's what I got. And and I, I mean, I could name you some shit that goes on on a goddamn daily basis. I mean, I, there was actually a meme that came through my Facebook feed couple of weeks ago you've probably seen it it's like the it's a new york times style cartoon it might even have been from the new york times and it's this these two this one man and one woman are sitting across from each other like probably having dinner on a date or something and the the um the caption is like when his confidence is more important than your area of expertise you know that kind of thing and yeah. i'm just like every damn department meeting every yeah. damn one um so but my last thing i'll say about that is um, despite it, mm -hmm. I have, um, oh wow, this is really tricky to like articulate. Yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think there are, I don't wanna say, there are different problems, not bigger, not more important, just different that my colleagues and my students very much, you know, they're facing more than microaggressions on a daily basis, right? Yeah. They're, they're, they're experiencing like blatant acts of stupid yeah. Um, you know, blatant acts of racism, blatant acts of transmisogyny, blatant acts of anti-indigenous racism, anti-Muslim racism, anti-black racism. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and, and of course, this is kind of how sexism operates. It's like it, it, it festers and people, many people, not all people, but many people are like, well, we've solved that problem or we don't need to worry about that problem when all the while the problem is actually that, because if you solve yeah. it, then you solve the rest of it. Yeah. In a huge way, because it's yeah. white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchy, <laughs> yeah. AKA colonialism, yeah. right? There's, like all the adjectives are describing the problem, which is heteropatriarchy. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I got to say about that. Well, and that's what, kind of why you have so many folks, yeah. so it's many precisely. focus. Precisely. Is because it is, it is really spread it's out. all and, connected. Yeah, you can't really fight one without the other, you know? It's impossible. People <laughs> yeah. do try, and every single time they try, it's, it's just performative or it falls on its face, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm not the most popular person for saying that um, <laughs> because it, it reads a lot of times, some, some people read it as me wanting to focus on sexism and yeah. misogyny. Yeah. But white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchy AKA colonialism is a series of adjectives describing a noun. The noun is heteropatriarchy. Yeah. You know, you can't get past the noun. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there it is. Yeah. yeah. And you sort of earlier, you brought up sort of the use of other people in, like you were talking about some academics using, you know, brown women and their experiences. Oh. So I find often in, in anthropology, for example, and you might find in your field as well, like that the often white scholars, for example, will use the experiences of marginalized peoples for their own work and their own gain. Mm -hmm. And so when you come across that, like, how would you say, how do you fight that? Well, I mean, okay, so I will answer your question specifically uh, from my perspective and about me. Mm -hmm. um, I can't, I can't answer for my field mm -hmm. um, or, or oh, like I can, I'm only going to answer for me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, I struggled um, and the verdict, the, 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 the verdict's out yet. So like, I don't know how this is all going to shake down truthfully. I, I, you know, I just finished this book and there's a particular chapter in there that I struggled to decide whether I should actually write it or not. Um, and I finally decided, yes, I'm going to write it. Um, but I did so with the, like, so, so there's one chapter in my book that I struggle to decide whether I should even write or not. This chapter, um, is on a part of the 2012 Calgary Stampede. And, and I focused on the 2012 because that was the centennial. So I thought, okay, this is a really cool example of like, what does the stampede and on its hundredth year anniversary, what does it want us all to think about it, right? What, what are we supposed to be celebrating? What are we supposed to be doing with this event? Um, and so in this particular chapter, I focus on um, what's now called um, Elbow River Camp, which used to be called Indian Village, and particularly the 2012 um, Calgary Stampede Indian Princess, whose name has now been changed. The official title is now First Nations Princess. And all of that is really recent, just a couple of years ago. Yeah. 
So back in 2012, it was still called Indian Village and still called Indian Princess. So those are the terms that I use in the chapter. And I explain this and I'm, I'm okay with that. I think for me, where I was um, having trouble was, you know, I know and I absolutely adhere to the notion of nothing about us without us. I don't like when it's done to me. <laughs> you know, I don't like when it's done to my partner. So nothing about us without us. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I decided that I could only write this chapter because I feel like it's an important chapter and it rounds out the book. Like it didn't feel right to write about the 2012 Calgary Stampede and not write about Indian Village. Like, you know, it didn't feel proper. Yeah. Um, and so... And so I decided I could write this chapter as long as I put in, um, which is, it's basically a three paragraph caveat about, about why I felt like it was okay for me to write this chapter, even though I don't have any connections in the, in the community, particularly Blackfoot, because um, Emilia Kircher, who was the First Nations or Indigenous, the Indian, Indian princess that year was Blackfoot, um, Pakani specifically. I don't have any, um, you know, any connections in those communities at all. I didn't have any intention of interviewing her ever. Like the idea was to do really a cultural analysis of, of anything that was in the newspapers, magazines, anything, press releases from the stampede, right? Very much like what is the public getting information? What kind of information is the public getting? Not necessarily what does Amelia Crochu actually think about what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it's like a three paragraph caveat about here's, here's why I feel like I'm okay writing this. And then the other reason why I decided I was okay to write the chapter was that I also, um, and this is something I do throughout the book, but specifically in that chapter, I flag really specifically here is where I don't know an answer to a question that I have. Mm -hmm. I, am, I don't have any way of getting the answer to the question. So this is where someone from the community would be a great place to like come in here and give me some more information. Mm -hmm. And so I say a couple of times, you know, my analysis may well be completely not true. Like it might be wrong if we had this other piece of information. Yeah. Um, so I was like really conscious of doing that. Um, mm -hmm. We'll see. I think, yeah, I think that's a very important thing. And would you say that you're seeing that more often of, you know, in papers and stuff like that? Because we talk about biases all the time and how that affects, you know, what we're writing, what our research is. But do you find that that is happening more often? Uh, I wish I could say that I did. Yeah, uh, um, that's you know, I think I think for feminist scholars, we're always. It seems to me that we're always about twenty years ahead of of the mainstream academic production, right? So, mm -hmm. so eventually, my history colleagues will catch up, yeah. um, and it's always the feminist historians that catch up before the other historians. You know, it's it, it's like sort of this cycle, um, and I think. And, and I think indigenous feminists here in Canada have done a really great job of like slapping us around a little bit as feminist scholars and reminding us that, you know, our approach to intersectionality is all well and good, but that's very much rooted in a US based black feminist thought. Yes. And that doesn't necessarily travel to Canada in the same kinds of ways, right? Um, yeah. That was definitely part of my learning curve when I moved here. You know, I moved from Washington DC, which was, um, you know, such a, it still is um, such a like sort of low, like vortex and extraordinary kind of bubbling space of of particularly black feminist activism, also Latinx feminist activism, um, but not a lot of indigenous feminist activism. So to come to move west and and sort of have that part of the conversation be much more um, salient for me has been mm -hmm. huge. So yeah. I really yeah. I think that's a good point though like we we've talked about this before how it took like a good 20 years for any feminist thought to sort of be incorporated into anthropology and it, it is true it really it takes a while for any of those more quote-unquote radical ideas to disseminate into other disciplines yeah that's yeah. and it's also it's also about anti-feminism right here's where the misogyny piece comes back since you you know mm -hmm. the question you asked for you know how is it like to be a woman in the academy i think actually for me the more salient question is what is it like to be a feminist scholar in the academy yeah and it's like banging your head against a damn brick wall <laughs> yeah. just like yeah. 
I have been talking about this for 20 years and my mm-hmm. professor taught me and they have been talking about it for 20 years, you know, yeah. so, and, and all of a sudden, like everybody's discovering, it's like, ah, uh, like I, I had a situation, I've been on sabbatical, but I've been kind of like watching what's been going on. And, and there was, you know, kind of, it's been really fascinating to watch some of my white colleagues, not, not feminist scholars, not women's and gender studies folks, but some of my colleagues in other spaces um, suddenly realize that there's racism on our campus. Yeah. 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 Like, wow. Yeah. It's exhausting to work, to watch them realize this and then to try to scramble to figure out how to solve the problem. Like, dude, read a book, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, we, we know the answers already. We don't need to like, we just, yeah. Anyway. So yeah, it's been, yeah, that's that's very true. (laughs) We can talk more about that later, but yes, absolutely. Well, yeah. Well, so to sort of switch topics a little bit, I would love to hear about your walking tours. Mm. I've been so curious about them. And so, yeah, just a little bit about that, a little bit about sex work in yeah. in the history of what is now called Calgary. Most yes, 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 yeah. exactly. Well, so I, again, I started this project kind of almost as a little tangent to my stampede research. Um, very short version is that when I first moved to Calgary, I started, I was hearing from students quite a lot about um, about how they and and others from you know other universities would be able to basically make their entire year's tuition by doing sex work or sexualized labor during the stampede so kind of in the lead up those 10 days and then immediately right afterwards and and you know knowing what i know it doesn't it didn't surprise me that the stampede would be a sex tourist event makes perfect sense given the criteria for such things um but i was like all right i need to learn some more about this and so that's when i really started my my stampede research but i was like because my my like I always want to know where it came from, right? Mm -hmm. Like this doesn't just emerge out of nowhere. So what, what kind of led to this? And as it turns out, the stampede has always been a sex tourist destination um, from 1912. And even before it was called the Calgary exhibition and stampede. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, so I just started like kind of tracing it back and tracing it back and tracing it back. And I just discovered these amazing women, um, overwhelmingly settler women, white settlers. Um, and, and the way I've done my research is I've gone through a good chunk, not all, I'm still working, of the CPS archives and these beautifully sort of preserved black vellum arrest books. Oh, wow. And they're handwritten, right, by the arresting officer, you know, so you've got the mugshot of the woman, and this is how I'm, I'm making the determination that they were settler, white settler women, mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got the mugshot of the woman, and then you've got the arresting officers, you know, dunk it in the, dunk the, the quill in the ink and write the, uh, you know, she was found at this intersection, and she's been arrested for vagrancy, and this is what, you know, what her penalty is and yada, yada. Um, and, uh, and so I basically just started like putting the tour together based on the locations where sex workers were arrested according to, you know, the police records. Um, and so one of the things that's really fascinating though about the research that I've been doing is that there were indigenous women in Calgary you know, from the moment, I mean, obviously way before, you know, I mean, but, but when Calgary became Calgary and it became a city in the 1870s, Indigenous women certainly were around. Um, Black women certainly were around, but they don't show up in the arrest records. So this is part of the, the sort of absence of folks. It's like you only you only show up on my tour if you got arrested, if you had some kind of encounter with the justice system. Because otherwise we don't know, like I don't know who was a sex worker, who wasn't a sex worker, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I started developing this tour and I stay and I stay very clearly at the beginning. I say, we're gonna do, this is white settler women. Sex, the sex industry was a colonial construct. It didn't exist in any form whatsoever before um, white people came to this this region. Um, and then I also talk about how um, that the 
reasons why women choose sex work are the same then as they are now. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, so it allows me, even though my tour only focuses on like the 1870s to the 1930s or really up to World War II in Calgary, um, I, I'm, I'm sort of strategic in that I get in like the current economic status of women and the current social and political status of women in Alberta is terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, Calgary consistently ranks among like the worst places in Canada to live if you're a woman. Mm-hmm. And so I get in some of why that's true and, and why sex workers may be sex workers now is the same reasons as they were sex workers then and all this stuff. But, um, but you know, what's really cool too is similar to now, um, the two or there were two or three sex workers that I talk about on my tour who had clients from all levels of society. So, like they were so well connected and also yeah. really wealthy mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and very popular. And the police service relied on them uh, to be informants as well as for services. Interesting sounds not dissimilar to what goes on now you know yeah i mean so so it's like and so basically my whole tour is like yes let's talk about the past and let's talk about these awesome women um you know and these women how they were also employers of other women and of cleaners and of construction workers and you know part of the economy but then let's also talk about why women and trans folks and queer folks now would choose sex work and why that why that looks the way it does and what stories are we are we told about that that might not necessarily be true so again all about uprooting power structures and you know figuring out who benefits from particular narratives that might not actually be what's really going on okay cool. yeah it's really fun yeah well and so this is a very broad question so good luck answering um but <laughs> we hear so often like sex work is the oldest profession right and so like how would you if you had to sum it up quickly like how would you say that sex work has changed the history of humans or maybe colonial um groups (laughs) oh wow yeah um how has it changed i mean you've pointed to certain things like they've they're in all of these different um areas and they're you know, working as informants and they're, and they're uh, uh, working to create jobs and they're uh, adding to infrastructure and all these sorts of things. But yeah. if there was one thing maybe that you could say, or uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know. I don't, I don't want to, I don't yeah. feel like that would be fair to sex I know. Nor would I it know. Be fair, nor, yeah. And, and I feel like the answer could change depending yeah. on what at. So, so I think, let me stick to Calgary because that's kind of what I'm most familiar with, yes, right? In terms sure. of the specifics of things. So I, I, I think um, in Calgary, um, one of the things that this, this is one of the huge reasons why for such a long time, when I say a long time, basically 40 or 50 years, and it ebbs and flows now, but for 40 or 50 years from like the 1870s when the railroad came on through to 1910, so 30 years, 40 years. See, my math sucks, 40 years. Why for 40 years did the various law enforcement people, whether it was the Northwest Mounted Police or eventually the CPS, why did they not care about the sex industry? Hmm. They just left, left them alone for the most part. The only, when they show up, when, so when sex workers were arrested, it wasn't because they were doing sex work. Um, although the assumption may well have been that, but it was very much about policing the, the behavior of women, right? You know, keeping in mind, this is Victorian space. It's a, it's a, it's the la- it's like a huge, it's a colonial outpost in the British empire. And even though um, Confederation was 1876, so it basically coincided with the railroad coming to Calgary, it's still, you got these very upright British folks who want everything to be very nice and British, you know? Um, and so it, part of that was was policing gender and policing mm-hmm. women particularly. And this was a time when like women couldn't leave the house without a male escort and weren't considered people and you know all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, couldn't own their own property, yada, yada. And so, um, and so you, a lot of the sex workers were actually arrested for vagrancy, which was you can't give an account of yourself, right? Why are you walking from here to here at this time of day without a male escort? Sure. Um, they weren't ever arrested really for um, selling sex for money, goods or services, even though that was illegal at the time. Um, so the CPS didn't care really about the sex industry for like 40 years. And part of that was because um, there weren't like all the men who were coming into Calgary to build the city, the white settler men and the, and the East Asian men who were brought in to build the railroad, they weren't allowed to bring their wives. Mm. And so the sex workers were the ones that kept everybody calm and mm. happy they were those it's like bonobos <laughs> yes that's exactly right <laughs> yeah yeah they were literally the entertainment in a city yeah. that didn't yet have any right that wasn't even a city yet really mm -hmm. so um so i think that was huge that they, they yeah. literally just kept everybody nice and calm yeah. you know you can look forward to your friday and saturday night you come into the city from the railroad from the coal mine from wherever you are from the ranch um and and you can have some services have a drink, do some dancing, and then mm -hmm. head back on out for the rest of the week. You know, mm -hmm. and the CPS relied on this because it was, you know, um, James Gray, who, who, um, whose chapter in his book, um, Red Lights on the Prairies, I rely on heavily for some of the sort of more anecdotal stuff. Um, he, he said, he calls it like that Calgary was the booze and brothels and gambling capital of Canada for a really good long time. It was like the wild west out here. Yeah. And you keep those guys happy, you know? And then that's yeah. the, that's also the part of my tour that I talk, that I kind of keep coming back to as, as I walk around the city, yeah. is that you can't have sex workers without clients. Yes. And somehow the clients do always end up missing from the conversation. Yeah. Vilify the hell out of sex workers, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So the clients, were the were the guys that are considered the important people who built our city these settler guys right so like we you know there are buildings named after them and shit yeah. but they were who do they think was using the sex workers exactly uh-huh yeah well and like that's just how much does that contribute to the economy like talking about capitalism over and over like that's <laughs> such a huge part yeah so that's i mean awesome yeah. So like, you know, you know, if you ask me as a, as a feminist activist, right, you know, is, would I prefer that sex work and sex trade not exist? Yes, of course I would. Mm -hmm. uh, that's great. However, <laughs> um, meantime, it's really important to destigmatize sex work, um, destigmatize sex workers, uh, decriminalize sex work. And then also like advocate for safety and harm reduction and yeah. like make their jobs <laughs> decent right because and not and not mock them and make fun of them and and vilify them because they do really important work i tell you what i would rather have a sex worker teach my kids about consent and sexually transmitted infections and how to prevent them you know what i mean yeah like any day of the week oh absolutely yeah yeah, I took a really interesting uh, course in the spring that was the anthropology anthropology of HIV and AIDS. Oh. And yeah, it was it was very interesting. But of course, like sex work was such a huge part of that conversation, and it's true. Like I I would very much trust learning from a lot of sex workers about, I mean, a lot of things, <laughs> even like safety, just in life. Yeah, boundaries and how to how to manage clients and like. How, you know, how to keep, how to run a business. Yeah. <laughs> business. I mean, honestly, like they know what, what is going on and they know how to get it done. And, and so it, you know, the, the fact that when I say that out loud, <laughs> you know, even in classes to my students, eventually they're like, oh yeah, I get it. But you know, that first time I say it out loud, you know, there's some giggles, there's some horrifying expressions, you know, and I'm like, that's, that's the stigma of sex work right there mm -hmm. in action that I have just said this to you, that we should respect sex workers, that they have knowledge, they have skills, they have expertise. Um, and that I would rather listen to them on learning how to present, you know, do safer sex. The fact that you has just elicited from you this like, horrific response mm -hmm. is exactly what this class is about is exactly what we're talking about you yeah know? definitely yeah and cool. the tour, yeah the tour totally emerged because i dragged my students around <laughs> the city of calgary for four hours one afternoon <laughs> 
and they were so tired and I was like yeah this is way too long isn't it they're all like oh my god <laughs> they're really guinea pigs they're <laughs> testing so bought them ice cream after, but yeah there was oh that's awesome that's great it's worth it ice cream always makes it worth it <laughs> Well, okay, so I guess part of this, our series of interviews is it's about the careers that we can go. So I think one thing that I forgot to ask was, what is some advice that you would give someone who's trying to figure out their path in life? If, you know, you are in academia now, but mm. to figure out, you know, based on your interests, or or why would you choose to go into academia, maybe? Right. Well, I mean, okay, so I'll, I think I, there's so many things that I could say. Wow. And I'm trying not to be sarcastic. I'm really trying to genuinely answer your question. <laughs> so, so I think the first thing, and, and here's my caveat, which is that I have such a supportive network around me. Mm -hmm. um, to this day, I know that if the shit hits the fan, I will never need to live in a cardboard box. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So, so when I say this, that is the background out of which that comes, right? Mm -hmm. There's not, there's not wealth, but there's not, I won't need to live in a cardboard box. Okay. Sure. So, um, and I have people who are consistently feeding me, whether it's true or not, you know, you're doing well, Kim, keep on doing what you're doing. You're doing well, you're doing well, you're doing well. Right. So I have, I have really extraordinary networks around me. Good support um, system. Yeah. Support system. Yeah. So here's my advice. Check in with yourself. I do it every six months, but you know, you can figure out when works for you. Check in with yourself. Is what you're doing right now working? Mm -hmm. If it's not working, what can you do differently? you might not be able to make a shift right now or, or tomorrow or even next year, but like, is there something you can do to get to a place where you can make that shift? Um, so yeah, I, I do, I check in with myself like every six months and just sort of say, and I'm quite in tune, you know, I, I journal and I, and I sort of say like, was this working for me? You know, how many, how many times did I put my foot in my mouth on a Friday afternoon last year? You know, can I fix that this year? You know, those kinds of things. Um, and there have been a lot of times, I mean, I, I haven't actually decided to become a professor yet. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm really fortunate that I have tenure and that I got this job and like, I, I love what I do. Um, but I'm not, but I, but it'd be okay if I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a huge, it took me a while to get there, you know, cause I was like, oh my God, like how would I pay my bills? Mm -hmm. um, but again, because I know that I'll never have to live in a cardboard box, it's, it's a, I, you know, it's like a, there's a comfort level there, which is really nice. So that's my, so my, my advice comes with that caveat, right? And, yeah. and caveat is really about some privilege that I have. Um, but then the other thing is like, Students often ask me, should I get a graduate degree in women's and gender studies or should I go and do social or anthro or history sure. um, and then like do, you know, a graduate certificate in women's and gender studies? <laughs> Truthfully, don't go to graduate school. Hmm. Don't do it don't do it right now um <laughs> kelsey you're screwed ah <laughs> uh, i mean well i should i should I, let me hear, let me amend this which is <laughs> i'll amend my i'll amend my thought which is perhaps not in humanities or social sciences mm -hmm. um the job market sucks it's just terrible it's terrible and if you're planning on staying in alberta it's even worse because jason kenny right now is is just destroying post-secondary as we know it yeah. i mean it'll be another two generations before post-secondary recovers assuming the ucp isn't re-elected mm -hmm. um they've just gutted it and i'm sure you've felt it at the ufc um unless you're in the business school in which case you're good to go yeah <laughs> you know and the same thing's happening it's just it's like the job market is terrible i you know there were three jobs in women's and gender studies last year three wow. like across north america Wow. Right. Social is pretty bad. History is pretty bad. Um, and the problem is that, that it seems to me um, that places like women's and gender studies, indigenous studies, um, any of the like critical academic spaces that are, that are like 
that exist to critique the very structures and systems that house them, right? Any academic spaces like that are right now bearing the brunt of conversations. And, and, and I'm not suggesting that that's, mm, okay, I'll just finish the sentence and then I'll come back. Um, the critical spaces have taken seriously the call for equity, diversity, and inclusion. So they're making it happen in their own spaces, which means that, for example, in women's and gender studies, in order to enact diversity, equity, and inclusion, they're like, oh, we need a diversity of training. So we won't hire a women's and gender studies person, we'll hire a historian mm -hmm. or a sociologist. But history or sociology aren't feeling that same pressure, so they're not hiring women's and gender studies people. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. So history and sociology get away with hiring the same white guys all the time. Mm -hmm. And the critical spaces that my suspicion is that you would want to be in mm -hmm. um, are, are like, like right now, there are a few departments in women's and gender studies that are actually across North America. There's, I think, three of them, and there aren't that many. I, I can't, I don't know exactly how many there are, but like three of them are chaired right now by, um, by cisgender white men, because that's what counts as diversity, equity, and inclusion in a women's and gender studies department. That's yeah. predominantly women and trans folks, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's just this really interesting thing that's happening in academia on top of which the, the sort of cut to funding and stuff, yeah. like the jobs are gone. There's no jobs. I literally, yeah. I got my job in 2009 at Mount Royal mm -hmm. and I was the last person um, in, my, in my cohort, like, mm -hmm. it, the, the folks that have graduated after me have had to do like two and three years of job searching. Oh, I was wow. the last person to get a job just going on the market one year. Interesting. So yeah, it's, it's really bad. It's really yeah. bad. And so sure if you want to get a job right away, don't go into academia. <laughs> yeah, don't. Or yeah. do, you know, and definitely don't go unless they pay for it. Holy crap. Mm -hmm. Don't pay for it yourself. No. Yeah. Yeah. No, don't pay for it yourself. Yeah. Cause you end up with loans. Like I have, that's the other, you know, the sort of piece of my existence that's really tricky is that I went, you know, I, my whole education is pretty much in the U.S. and my graduate degree is from the University of Maryland. So I have U.S. student loans mm -hmm. that are just killing me. They're kicking my ass and yeah. I'm going to be in these until I'm 85 years old. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. like a thousand bucks a month. U.S. Yeah. goes out and it's like off the top, gone, yeah. gone. Yeah, and thankfully it's a bit different in Canada, but still, like, Ed, it's just absurd, the student loans and the fees. And I are... had, that was with full funding, by the way. Like, I had wow. a full year, like, stipend, graduate assistantship every year for five years. And Holy. because DC was so expensive, like, yeah. I still ended up with about $90,000 US dollars. Wow. Oh, my goodness. And wow. I had no loans from undergrad and no loans from my first graduate degree, right? So, like, it's all just my PhD wow um, yeah so it'll just kick your ass basically yeah no kidding so um <laughs> wow <laughs> well thank you <laughs> so you know not to be deputy downer or anything but <laughs> don't do it don't go to graduate school <laughs> right. lots to think about <laughs> so i have one more question that i sort of want to end on but kelsey or lulu do you have any questions <laughs> yeah crying yeah I <laughs> from the <laughs> Um, do you have any questions uh, for Kim? Oh, <laughs> sorry. After that, whole thing. <laughs> pressed everyone. <laughs> My sister has a degree in women's and gender studies. She has a few questions. If you can hear us, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we can hear you. I actually, okay, I have one question just about like general activism stuff. Um, do you find, especially in Calgary, that a lot of people will say that your work and your opinions are like radical? And how do you reconcile with that? Like, what is your to that? So the short answer is fuck yes. <laughs> because Calgary is like, I don't even know how to explain Calgary. It's like this strange place of strangeness. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm also at a really conservative university, so mm -hmm. so yeah, um, yes. How I how I I just keep on keeping on, you know. 
like you keep on keeping on because the work is important and like I have I know that the work matters because I have so so there are people here you know you find your people you know wherever they might be are they your colleagues are they your you know who are they right um I I know it matters and I and I see that it matters because I have colleagues that are doing the work too um sometimes we're doing the work together on a thing and sometimes we're doing work separately in our own things but but the work like i see it happening so it does matter um and i know historically and this is where this is where i love that you all are are you know archaeology and anthro folks because you get the importance of history like you understand the importance of these legacies in the past and how shit builds on itself right mm -hmm. so um so i know that that social justice like riots you know rioting is literally the only thing that has ever changed anything so when i when like my white people this is why i do so much house cleaning when like my white people are like oh my god why are they rioting i'm like yeah, i was there because literally how do you think you got to wear pants bitch like i can't <laughs> you know um so, like i'm sorry but i have no patience for that you know yeah um like literally i know that that history tells me I have read books. I have seen it on the news. I understand that that the work that I try to do every day is the only thing that changes anything. And I can't. I mean, it's not. It doesn't mean I do it by myself. Like I, you know, no one person can do to, can do that. But I also know that there are all these other people doing it too, right? Um, that's why I love to do this kind of stuff because I meet you all and I'm like, oh, thank you, thank you for that, <laughs> right? Because um, I'm old now. I mean, really, I'm I'm like. I'm like the professor that students walk into class and they're like, oh my God, she's like 97 and <laughs> ancient and like, what will we learn from her? Irrelevant, right? And I'm okay with that, like, you know, but still, right? I doubt that, but okay. A little bit, a little bit. Um, but, but anyway, so, so yeah, so like that, but I won't say that it's not hard. Like, honestly, I won't say it's not hard. I you know, I'm looking to going back to a, another year. And again, I I was on sabbatical this past year to write and I, I, I was not, I'm not, I don't know, am I present tense, past tense? I'm really not looking forward to dealing with it again. It's not the teaching. The teaching is fine. I love that. That's like the work and I'm, I love it so much. But if I have to sit in a fucking room with one more white person or man, and sometimes they're also white, but sometimes they're not, you know, who, who is like doing some stupid shit. I don't know. I might blow a gasket truthfully, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm working with my therapist. <laughs> so that's maybe the other thing is a good therapist. If you can afford one. <laughs> Got, gotta love therapy. Yeah. You know? yeah. I have, I, drugs, drugs are good too. You know, not, not illicit, although I'm not, you know, saying something or another about that, but like, you know, prescribed drugs are very helpful. Sure. My Vyvanse, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, because, because the whole, like the, yeah, we're, we're just, we're told we're the crazy ones. We're not the crazy ones. How do people function? I'm a U.S. citizen and I'm watching my fucking country explode right now, you know, mm -hmm. as I point south to the, to the Montana border. I mean, yeah. like, the U.S. Postal Service, of all things, yeah. is not going to let me cast my ballot because, you know, like of all things. So literally, if what was happening in the U.S. was happening in any other country, the U.S. would send in troops, you know. Talk yeah. about a failed state. It's like out of control. And so, um, and I mean, I've been joking, but I'm not joking. If, if a civil war breaks out, you'll find me in Great Falls because that's my nearest city. And I'm mm -hmm. going to present myself to the Sioux at Standing Rock. I would just be like, tell me what you need, you know. Mm -hmm because I like, that's, that's what happens. I mean, so it's, I don't know. It's just like, sometimes you take a break and sometimes you get back to it because we're yeah. not the crazy ones. We're not. Yeah. So I'm, I, I, I <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna summarize from that. I'm gonna say good support system, therapy, taking breaks. It sounds like, <laughs> Yeah. Whatever that all means to you, you know, truth, truthfully, and and like, yeah, yes, those are that's the summary. That's it. <laughs> yeah, and and for me too, reading, like I love my books, you know, and 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 that's the other thing that like I have I have right here, like literally the books that the theorists, the activists, the people that I can just you know grab and like read a quote or or read a you know put in put in something for my students or you know just something so whatever 
whatever like people inspire you you know if it's Audre Lorde if it's Eve Tuck if it's Sarah Ahmed like whoever it is you know for me my books are are just you know because again I'm old so refuge yeah 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 they they say thank you and that was a very satisfying response so (laughs) I'm glad (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh man well Lulu do you have any other questions um I think the last thing just to kind of wrap this up is um what kind of change in discourse would you like to see and maybe what can we implement into anthropology and archaeology from your field that might be helpful for us that second piece is tricky because I don't really know your field that well. So I, I never took an anthropology or an, an archaeology course, but the one anthropology course I did take um, was on Papua New Guinea. Oh. And it was super racist, but I didn't have like the, I mean, this was 1995 or six, right? When I was a sophomore at university. So I, it was a long time ago, um, but yeah, it was super racist, but I didn't have like the language then to like articulate that or express that or whatever it was also super sexist um so i was like ah fuck this shit you know so i don't um i don't know the answer to the second question but i think the in the first in the first instance one of the things for me um that is most frustrating i think overall um is the the discourse that or the narrative that um that we don't need feminism anymore, that, that mm-hmm. somehow that's passe, that somehow all the problems that feminism is supposed to have solved have been solved and we're good to rock and roll. You know, and this is a discourse that gets perpetrated by the mainstream press so that when my students show up in Introduction to Women's and Gender Studies, they think, oh, they don't know that Calgary is among the worst places in Canada for women to live. They don't know that, well, they maybe might know because of the news and it's been so prevalent, but they don't know the extent to which Indigenous women go missing and murdered um, and why that matters and the history behind it and, the, and, and what Indigenous women in particular have been doing to try to solve it. You know, um, They don't realize the... Um, actual history of feminist activism and labor activism in Calgary. Like it's all been disappeared, you know? Um, There was just an extraordinary labor activist movement in this city for the first half of the 20th century. And just this extraordinary feminist movement in the city for up until the 19, early 1980s. And it's all just gone. Like you don't, you don't get it taught. You don't get talked about like nothing, right? yeah, so those like that discourse about oh well, feminism doesn't matter really pisses me off, mm-hmm. um, and I think it actually goes back to where we started, which is, you know, if we're talking about colonialism and anti-colonial activism, which we need to and and must be involved in, for me, another term for colonialism was white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchy, and white supremacist capitalists are all adjectives to describe the noun which is the heart of what the problem is, which is heteropatriarchy, you know? And so that to me is the discourse that I feel like if we could, if we could crack that code, um, and I've been trying for 40 years, I keep on keeping on, if we could crack that code, then I feel like we could get some other things done. Yeah. Because with a, with a, with white supremacy, um, you know, one of the things that like so that has been showing up in in more sort of sub mainstream journalism lately has been the link between white supremacy and misogyny, right? That so many white supremacists have histories of of um, spousal abuse, for example, right? Those kinds of things, or you know, the guy who dro- drove his van into um, the crowd in Toronto was an incel, you know, those kinds of things, and so you know, how do you, you can't go after one if you don't address the other, they're connected problems. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's what I say. Mm. Wow. Uh, I mean, I think that's good advice, but. <laughs> that's just, that's Kimberly Crenshaw. I'm just, you know, I'm just learning, yeah. yeah, I'm seriously. Just learning from the people who taught me, you know. No kidding, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so 
my last question, if there's nothing else, is, I'm going to try this out, who knows, it'll flop, but because the name of our podcast is pertaining to people, mm-hmm. what would you say is at the base? What is the thing that most pertains to people or humanity? What is at the core of that, of humanity? Again, avoiding sarcasm. <laughs> if you have to say that, it's probably not a very good question. <laughs> yeah, beautiful question. I'm just feeling particularly misanthropic. Um, it's going to sound totally cheesy, but love. Like, we, you know, obviously we all got to eat, you know, and we all got to drink. But like, and that's why access to clean water and 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 nutritious food matters. Mm-hmm. But then like assuming, assuming you kind of have that, or even if you don't have that, I think we all just want to feel like someone gives a shit about us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's very true. Yeah. I think that's a good, good way to end. I like that. It's lovely. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so I had a blast. This was really oh, lovely. Thank you so it, much. It was great to meet you, and and I I had a, a great time doing this interview. I hope you did too. And did um, too. thank you. Is there anything that you want to plug for yourself? Your, I don't know, social medias. Yeah. So I so I'm on I'm on Twitter at uh oh oh I don't know my address. That's. <laughs> at k williams yyc um and and there you can get all the things my website and all the stuff but i haven't been doing my walking tour this year but next year i'm hoping i'll be able to get back to it because obviously covid kind of derails all of us yeah Um, and uh so i'm so look for that um and then my book is coming out and it's called this is my favorite title ever are you ready so ready truck nuts (laughs) cowboys and rodeo queens gender matters at the calgary stampede oh boy yeah i love it i'm looking forward to it that's you great. understand nuts is still with a, with a z oh, of course oh yes, wow. yes. truck nuts <laughs> you get clapping from kelsey and her sister <laughs> <laughs> that's it that's, what... that's awesome awesome we'll put uh, links to your website and everything on our website but again thank you very much this was a blast thank you this was totally fun it was such a (laughs) way to start my year back so i appreciate it yeah and hopefully it's a good year i hope Uh, (laughs) it's just gonna happen you know um, thank you all so much thank you (laughs)